Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and uh, we're going to again talk about the Kingdom of God. And uh, we've been going through Exodus along uh, parallel with uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, Exodus group. I, I, they haven't been progressing very quickly on their episodes, but they've had some very hot debates getting into episode 10, uh, where everybody was talking at once because they were getting all excited about one single idea, and that is monotheism. And uh, are there gods many? Uh, what is that all about? And I think it really, they continually go back to it. And so we'll probably continually go back to it. And one of the things that I've said that's kind of a controversial statement is God is an office. Uh, God is a position. Uh, we, and you can have, there are gods many according to Paul. There's reference to gods many in the Old Testament. There's uh, words that are, you know, like Elohim, which is normally translated God, and we'll see that in the uh, chapter that we're going to be going into here, is translated judges. You're literally taking people before judges in the community, actual people in the community that are going to decide elements of controversy. And they... They are called Elohim, which is the word we translate into judges. Sometimes they call it Hey Elohim. They put a Hey in front of it. But that seems to be just syntax because other times they just say Elohim. And they're clearly referring to individual people. And they're calling them God. They just don't translate it God in these rare instances. They translate it Judges. And, of course, Jesus even says to his apostles, ye also are gods. And, of course, that fits right into that, that you have a right to judge certain things. Certain things you don't have a right to judge, and you have to leave that judgment to God. If you try to judge those things, then you're usurping God, or you're putting somebody, if you give the power to somebody to judge those things, then you're giving the power that should belong to the God of creation to an individual person. That's not what we see happening in Exodus 21 and 20 when they refer to certain people as being Elohim, God's. And making decisions and recording events. And they're called gods. And they're actually people in the community. But they're not the God. So then now there's multiple gods. And I haven't, you know, their resident Jew on their uh, symposium is Dennis Prager. And uh, he made a statement in episode 10 that he did not and does not, as a Jew, believe in devils, actual entities that are, you know, spiritual demons, I think is the word that he referred to, demons. And he says, but of the events that he has seen recently in our own history, he's beginning to question that belief, that there 
almost at, at the speed at which things are progressing, uh, evil is progressing in the world today, he actually is beginning to question that belief that maybe there are demons. Now, are they gods or do, how, if God is in office, and this is why it's important to think of that word, Elohim, as an office, is because you have to realize that an office has duties. It has rights. It has responsibilities. It has power. And, uh, you know, the, uh, I refer to the idea of husband as an office. Uh, uh, wife as an office. Father as an office. Even son and daughter are offices. They have certain duties and responsibilities that go along with them. And you have a choice on how you attend to those duties. So if we think of God, father, son, daughter, wife, husband as offices, there are positions in which we have certain power or duties it may become a little easier to deal with this idea of God or God's many. These are offices. And the question is, who is your God? I mean, that is your question. You have to answer that question yourself. Now, if there is a God in heaven, a creator, an entity, he's probably not an old man with a white beard, or any of these images that we place on him. He's certainly not a golden calf. (laughs) Or the people in charge of the golden calf, who are the gods of the golden calf, because they have authority over the golden calf. When uh, different people, I think Pericles, uh, needed more money for the army during some of the wars, the Peloponnesian Wars, he melted down their golden god, their golden statue. He cut off an arm or a leg or something and melted it down, made coins to buy what he needed for the army. And that's... Now, in order to do that, he was the supreme leader. He was the commander-in-chief of the military. And he said, I need the money or we're not going to win this war. And so I'm going to dip into our... Reserve fund. That's what they call these golden statues. Reserve funds. And he literally hacked off a chunk of it, melted it down, and made coins because he needed to buy things, probably from foreigners, maybe lumber for ships, whatever it was, to build up his army to fight the war. Now, Israel wasn't to have these golden statues, these reserve funds. They were to have, according to Moses, they were to, and we'll see this as we get through farther into uh, Exodus, they were, and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, they were to keep their gold in their own personal purse. So they still had a reserve fund, but the power the God of their reserve fund was themselves. They had a right to judge how to redistribute that wealth. If there was a threat of war, they, you could cry out to the people, we need more money for, you know, to buy more iron, uh, from somebody to make more weapons or whatever weapons they were using <laughs> at the time. <laughs> they, 
if they needed more funds, they would have to appeal to the people to give them. When, when the Israelites decided to have a king, Saul, he was elected as a choice of the people, but appointed by Samuel and became the king. He did a foolish thing early in his reign as commander-in-chief of the military. He forced a sacrifice. And when he forced that sacrifice, and Samuel found out about it, because he was going to ask Samuel to, we need more funds. And Samuel was slow in coming. And so Samuel could not appeal to the people to give more funds because he wasn't there. And so he forced a sacrifice. And Samuel came in and said, that was a foolish thing you did, Saul. And because of that, forcing that sacrifice, taking from the people who held the purse strings of the reserve fund in their own purses, that his kingdom would not stand. It would fail. And it failed at the end of his life when he fell on his own sword. And David became the heir to the throne that the people wanted. But, and if you go back, there's a lot of drama there. We won't go into it in depth, but just once you start seeing all the pieces of the puzzle, you look and you get a, a picture of the a section of the puzzle. Saul knew that David was picked to succeed him. It wasn't his son. So he wanted to make him his son by giving him his daughter. And his daughter would bear a child and the lineage of Saul would continue through that child. But that didn't happen. The the, the lineage fell somewhere else. And so it didn't fall with uh, David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba's first child uh, died. I mean, he had, David had a number of concubines, but uh, none, no children by Saul's daughter. So his kingdom died out, supposedly because he had done this foolish thing of forcing a sacrifice. When we see the golden calf, and they make the golden calf a reserve fund, where they take their gold and put it into the golden calf, they had to have somebody who knew how to do this and to do it as a temple, as a religion. And Aaron knew the arts of the temple. He wasn't a brick maker. In if he knew the arts of the temple, he wasn't spending his old day making bricks. He was working in the temple to know how they did everything in the temple. And like I said, in the temple in... Egypt, they had granaries, huge stores of granary. They also had huge amounts of gold. All that gold that came in when the famine and everybody came to them to buy grain, they're buying that grain with gold and silver. So the treasuries of Egypt were fat with gold and silver. And the people had none. They were in bondage again. The people were in bondage in Egypt didn't own all their labor. They didn't have any gold. All the gold was in the hands of the government. 
in, in whatever Fort Knox they had there <laughs> in Pharaoh's cities. And uh, the people used something else as a trade good, either commodity monies, you know, like I'll, I'll give you so many bricks if you give me so many bags of barley or whatever, and uh, or sheep for barley or barley for sheep. And, and they were trading these items. But they also had a form of money made out of clay scarabs, which didn't have any value as a clay scarab, but it had little etchings on it that said that it had a certain value. And they used that as an exchange amongst them. But if they were to flee and run out of Egypt and and make it across the desert to some other place, those scarabs weren't of any value. And you couldn't take a lot of bricks with you. They, you couldn't take that portable gold because you didn't have any of that portable gold. But of course, when Moses going to take the people out, and we looked a little bit, we've we've gone through Exodus 21 and these judgments that Moses starts listing off. And I'm going to revisit this a little bit because of the things that they're now saying in Jordan Peterson's uh, episodes 9 and 10. Because they're referring to these statutes that Moses is listing off as if they are laws. 613 laws that everybody has to abide by. And we addressed it a little bit. I have a little bit more information on this as to some of the penalties that are in these laws. Because the ten statements that we call ten commandments, they are laws, but they're laws like the law of gravity. They pre-existed the voice of God from Mount Sinai. God is simply explaining these principles or precepts that exist in the universe from the beginning. And and I've made several references even to some of these statutes that uh, are, I'm going to call, start calling them more often judgments because that's the way they're said. If you go to Exodus 21.1, now these are judgments which thou shalt set before them. That, I mean, that's what he says. He didn't say these are statutes, these are laws, these are the new Hammurabi code. He says these are judgments that you set before them. And he has a particular word there that we see for judgments, which uh, is a very long word. It's got a lot of extra letters. Hey, uh, Mem, Shin, uh, Pei. I was trying to think of what the rest of them were. <laughs> but uh, tet mem. A tet yad mem. But anyway, that, that word is translated 296 times judgment. It, it shows up a lot. It's translated in other ways, but, you know, manner, or right, or cause. It's actually translated ordinance, again, back to those statutes and ordinances. But uh, it's even translated discretion or custom or law or measure. But it means the act of deciding a case. So what Moses is really doing is giving people 613 examples of judgments. Which I, I referred to in our our second show last week as the way in which common law is decided. Common law is not statutory. 
It's not subject to statutory law. Now, English common law, there's two kinds of English common law, the original English common law, that's not subject to decrees of parliament. It pre-existed parliament, but you can fall prey to parliament by applying to the benefits of parliament, which would be referred to in Proverbs as the dainties of rulers, so now you will fall under their statutory authority. And the way the English refer to this, this parliamentary statutes as, uh, as laws as well. And there's a whole transition. We've talked about them in the book, uh, uh, Covenants of the Gods and Thy Kingdom Come, where they, they slowly moved before 1066 the English common law, people actually owned their land. There there was a lot of people who lived on some lord's land or somebody else's land and were maybe tenant farmers or indentured, but uh, most of the land in Great Britain was owned by somebody. And as a matter of fact, the definition of a free man was somebody who owned some land, some parcel of land. And when Americans or Englishmen and even some Dutch and other people came here to America. They wanted to own land too. They couldn't, because by the time you got to 1500 and 1600s, most of the land was only a legal title, and the actual lawful titles of the land was held by the king. This is the way it was in the bondage of Egypt, that you lived in Goshen, and you held a legal title to land, but the land was actually owned by the king. And you lived on it by privilege of the king. It wasn't like Abraham, who owned a little bit of land himself, and he bought it with substance, with silver. And he was this free man, but he stayed free because he created altars of clay and stone and of course Moses is going to tell people to create altars of clay and stone I have heard nothing amongst Jordan Peterson's symposium where they even have the slightest idea of what the altars of clay and stone is but uh, in episode 10 around 50 minutes in they had this huge burst of enthusiasm as to what is a God and a god is someone who has office or authority over something. He is a god of that thing. He has authority to decide something over that thing. Which is why Jesus says, ye also are gods. Because he was going to not only set the captive free, he was going to return every man to his possession and to his family. Because this is, this is absolutely essential to understand is that the institution in God's kingdom that is the building block of God's kingdom is, is of course primarily first the man and the woman, but together they become a family. So that is the first, the family is the first institution of the kingdom of God. Which is why communism, the new world order, and, uh, Everything that we see being going on in, in, in America since uh, uh, the institution of the Federal Reserve and Social Security with uh, FDR has been undermining the family. And of course, in order to strengthen that family and to keep the first four commandments of the Bible, 
that we see the first four statements from Sinai is based around the idea of the family. Because you had to honor your father and your mother. So if they can do anything to keep you from honoring your father and their mother, your mother, they will begin to dissolve the effectiveness of those first four commandments. If they can do anything about getting you to covet your neighbor's goods, they can dissolve the effectiveness and the reality of the sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandment. Because those commandments, you know, the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, I've, I've taken to start counting that as the proper number for that commandment is five. Um, and the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet anything that thy, is thy neighbor's. On those commandments hinge the other commandments that go before them. Again, back to what I said when we first began in Exodus, where Moses tells something at the beginning, but then he explains it in greater detail and repeats it at the end of that explanation. This is this is why the, the commandments are laid out in the way that they are. But probably the key part of the beginning of this show is understanding that a God is someone who has executorial authority over something. And instead of creating a golden calf where whoever knows the arts of the temple will have executorial authority over the golden calf and the the wealth that is stored in it, the wealth is supposed to be stored in your pocket and that you come together and bind yourselves with something other than a golden calf or uh, Hammurabi codes or etc. And, and we're going that's going to be kind of a theme of this show to distinguish between what Moses is doing because there's no real point in going on to a lot more of the statutes until you understand that the statutes are judgments. He is talking about precedent. That common law, when you decide, and those cases would be decided by a jury of your peers, they would be the God of that case. They would be the God of that court that you assemble to decide fact and law at common law. But they would look back at previous judgments to help them contemplate what is fair, what is just, what is right. And what Moses is doing is not writing statutes like the Parliament of England or the judiciary, well actually now somewhat judiciary, but the legislature of the United States or the Parliament of Canada or whatever country you're in, they're making laws. You know, you have to wear a mask. You you have to, and they didn't even always make those laws, but they had administrative authority over them and they controlled the people. But the people were controllable because they were not seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I don't know if they'll ever get to that. In, uh, but I, I, I see little hints that they're kind of looking, some of them are kind of looking that way. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, so who's your God? That's going to be a question you're going to have to answer. Who makes choices as to what is good and evil for you? 
Do you make them for yourself? Does somebody else make them for you? Does somebody else tell you who is good, what is good, what is right, what is wrong? Or do you listen to that still small voice spoken of by the prophets that tells you what is good and what is evil? And one one part of the conversation with uh, the people at uh, Jordan's uh, symposium is that they were... They were talking about five, uh, six, seven, eight, nine, and I guess ten as well. Commandments or statements are self-evident, and Jordan Peterson points out that not to a psychopath. <laughs> to a psychopath, they are not self-evident. He doesn't see that. Well, why shouldn't I kill? You know, there's no reason why I can't kill. Of course, there are reasons why you shouldn't kill, but he may not see them. His conscience is seared, and so therefore he does not see that, why can't I kill? I should be able to kill. You know, I mean, that that seems fair, because I need to kill. And and I've actually heard psychopaths talking in such a way that they, they are convinced that they, you know, it's absolutely reasonable that they kill. Or, and they did kill. They killed many people before they were finally caught. And there was a guy writing a book and he went and interviewed this guy who was in jail and he, he began to realize that this guy was on this road to becoming this murderer and this psychopathic murderer way back probably when he was a small child, four or five years old. And what, uh, there was an incident where his younger brother, who could just barely walk, drowned in the pool in their backyard. And he was the only witness to that drowning. Now we don't know what happened. He has no recollection of what happened. But, uh, it is somewhat of a memory. But when he gets back to that memory of that day, that event of his brother drowning in, in the pool, there seems to be, that seems to be the beginning of his psychopathy. Now, it may have begun earlier than that. Jordan Peterson talks about that, that a lot of times events that happen when we're very young set us and determine whether or not we're going to be a criminal when we get older. Anybody who's dating needs to find out how you detect those signals. <laughs> to to uh, who is going to be a criminal, a liar, a psychopath, a... Uh, because I see, you know, I see it in a lot of people, uh, but I know a lot of people dating those people can't seem to see it. And uh, the question is now, uh, Jordan even says you can't ch- turn them around. I, I know other people that I respect greatly, they says you can't turn them around. Once they get to a certain point, you cannot turn them around. Well, I don't think you can, but I think God can. And according to the stories that we read in the New Testament of Jesus Christ, there was one guy who was a total psycho, total psychopath, supposedly possessed by demons, was going around in graveyards, digging up people and chewing on bones to to survive. And Jesus goes and casts out these demons. And the guy is like pudding in his hands. Uh, you know, just follows Jesus around after that and is is evidently redeemed from his 
uh, psychopathy. Same way with uh, the father whose son was trying to destroy himself because he had this supposed demon in him. He was on a self, self-destruction journey. And Jesus casts out the demon that seems to be controlling the strings. And uh, suddenly he's better. Now, according to Dennis Prager, as I said in the first part of the show, he doesn't didn't believe in demons, but now he's beginning to suspect or question that belief. As a Jew, they they don't believe in that, and it's also interesting. He says he even said in the course of that episode ten that you know that there's no other gods. There's it's monotheistic. There's only one God, and we don't use Jews don't use the word God for anybody else. And uh, but I just show you that that's not the case. Uh, there are gods many. Well, we see it right there in Exodus 21, where they're referring to somebody as judges. They're actually using the word God, Elohim. It says, "Then his master shall bring him unto the judges." We know that those judges are people because they're going to handle an all and they're going to pierce his ear through and then he's going to put a ring in it so it doesn't heal up and then he will be a slave forever to his master because he chooses to. He chooses to. And so we see that in in Exodus 21.6 that this is a part of those judgments that Moses is writing out and explaining so that you understand how it all works. Except they don't understand how it all works because they didn't translate that word Elohim into gods. Then they might have a better understanding of what a god is and that there are gods many. Now this judge or these judges who make this choice to put this all in his ear are doing it because he empowers them to do it. He gives them the power to do this, the authority to do it, because he chooses to stay his master servant. I should use the word servant rather than slave, because it, it create, we use these words interchangeably all the time, but it creates confusion, because you think, well, there is no slavery in the United States. Well, there is a form of slavery in the United States. There's just no involuntary servitude. You can still be in servitude. It's just not involuntary servitude. And involuntary servitude we could define as, you know, going over to Africa and paying Africans to catch other Africans and enslave them. And then we'll put them on these boats and then we'll take them over to America. The same as they did in North Africa when they went over with the Corsairs, went over and grabbed Irish men and women and or Italian men and women, and took them down and sold them in the slave markets in Africa. Uh, they, they That was enslavement. They were going to some place, capturing somebody, and turning them into slaves. That would be a pretty clear definition of slavery. Servitude would be a little bit different, because you choose to become a servant. Maybe you borrow money, you know, like you could sell yourself an indentured servant. You, and, and we see, before Moses, Jacob did this. He said, 
I will work for you for seven years if you give me your daughter in marriage. Or your, yeah, your daughter in marriage to uh, Levon. And then on the night of his wedding, seven years later, here, here comes what he thinks is his bride and it's his bride's sister. <laughs> and Levon has some feeble excuse. Well, well, normally we let the oldest one get married first. I mean, they're sisters. It's like the same thing. <laughs> so... Anyway, he says, well, you've, you've cheated me, and, uh, but I, I still want the other daughter. And he says, okay, okay, but you gotta promise to work for me for another seven years. So now he's indentured. He could have left any time in the first seven years, but he would have left without Rachel or Leah. But in the second seven years, he's indentured. He gets her, but, he doesn't have to wait 14 years. <laughs> he gets her. But he is now indentured. He has to work off this debt for seven years. And then, of course, he makes another deal. that I'll get all these sheep. Of course, he's got Lebon pretty well figured out. Uh, if I work another seven years for you. Which was enriching Lebon. Because whatever he put his hand to prospered. So, Laban says, yeah, okay, you can take all the spotted sheep. And then he, he pulls some trick, uh, according to Laban, figures that he was snookered on the deal. And he is able to leave with all kinds of sheep after 21 years of servitude, where he worked for another guy. I mean, he got to eat, he got clothing, he probably got all kinds of benefits, tents, and all this kind of stuff. But uh, he was working for another guy. Well, in America today, everybody's working for the man. Everybody's in servitude. A portion of your labor, just like in the bondage of Egypt, is taken away from you. And it goes to the modern federal pharaoh, who does something with it. (laughs) He doesn't actually run government on it. He runs government on debt. He's just paying the interest on that debt with all the labor that you paid him before you got to work for yourself. Because this is another thing they never address. Jordan Peterson's symposium never addresses that everybody, so far, everybody in the world today is all back in the bondage of Egypt. But there are gems, nonetheless, that I hear coming out of their mouths talking and I'm trying to put them together with the pieces of the puzzle that they seem to be missing. Very important to see these pieces they're missing. And one of them is that gods are judges and judges are gods. And that's why there are gods many because there are judges many. Now, those who followed along with, you know, Jesus was called the Son of God. Uh, Augustus Caesar was called the Son of God. Tiberius was called the Son of God. Caligula was called the Son of God. It was an office. Uh, they were actually, because they held that office, they could hold another office that was created by Augustus Caesar when he marched into Rome as the Savior of Rome. Octavius, he became Augustus at that point. And that was Apotheos, a pointer of the gods. That's what, what one of his offices. He appointed all the imperial judges throughout the Roman Empire. And that's, that's what the President of the United States does. 
I remember when Bill Clinton was having his hair cut on the tarmac and everybody made a big deal out of the fact that he was having, he held up Air Force One like it has someplace else to go. I mean, it only carries the president around. He held it up on the tarmac. They didn't take off when they were going to take off because somebody came onto the Air Force One to give him a haircut. Everybody says, oh, so frivolous. What they did, as soon as I read that, I said, so what else did he do that day? If that's the big story, they're missing the big story. Well, the big story was, and we won't go into it all here, but just to give you, if you don't see all the pieces of the puzzle, you won't know what's going on. (laughs) You won't get a clear picture. Well, what he had done that day is he fired all the federal judges throughout the United States. All federal judges appointed by the White House were fired that day. And he got a haircut (laughs) on the tarmac in Air Force One. Okay. (laughs) Well, he hired them all back almost immediately after firing them all. But I I haven't had the time. I mean, I, I, I work 16, 17 hours a day as it is. I never had the time to go and find out, okay, they're hired back under what contract? I mean, is there a check coming from somewhere else? Is there a term in the contract that has changed? What changed? Why do you do that? Why do you fire everybody and then hire them back immediately? Something shifted. <laughs> in the matrix uh it doesn't really matter and i never really looked it up i mean it does matter in the scheme of things but it doesn't it, it's not going to determine who your god is uh, that we know that all those judges are gods i've been in a lot of those federal courts with other people who get into trouble because they didn't read my book first or, or my books first <laughs> <laughs> or our books. I should say our books because they're not entirely written by me. Uh, and they don't understand what's going on and they get themselves into trouble with the gods many of the world because they don't understand. And they certainly don't understand in episode 10 when they're arguing about monotheism or what. The question is, who's their god? And I don't think they would like the answer. Some might be willing to hear it. But the important thing is, are you willing to hear it? Because I'm not talking to thousands of people or even millions of people that might eventually listen to these recordings. I'm talking to individuals. Because the the first tenement of the kingdom of God is the individual. The first institution of the kingdom of God is the family. And in that family... There are gods over that family. And hopefully those gods of that institution of the family have the God creator of heaven and earth as their God. Now how do you do that? Do you read the Bible and then say, Lord, Lord? Or do you actually have communication with the God of creation? Because if you don't have communication with the God of creation, if something has singed your eternal conscience, your soul, your mind, you might be a psychopath. 
And this is one of the things that I see Jordan, because of his interest in psychology and his studies and everything, he's seen that, and he's done a lot of talks recently about the fact that your childhood is haunting your adulthood, because unresolved issues in your childhood are creeping up into your adult life. You're dragging the baggage of your young life into your older life. When you're a little kid, there was only so much damage you could do. But as an older person, and maybe holding political office, you can do all kinds of damage. And so you have to know what kind of damage you are doing or not doing. And uh, in order to know that, you need maybe some knowledge, but what you really need to have is revelation. You need to have that self-evident truth, the source of that self-evident truth, speaking to you in your heart and your mind. That's the tree of life. The tree of knowledge by itself is going to, you will turn into a psychopath. You will kill your own brother. Just like Cain. Because you will become a psychopath. And it begins with you trying to be ruler over your neighbor. Which begins with coveting your neighbor's goods. It will eventually lead to you stealing from your neighbor. Bearing false witness against your neighbor. And even killing your neighbor. And you will even adulterate all your relationships. You will destroy all your relationships. I see this over and over again. And I'm I'm trying to put this into perspective. These basic simple outlines of the ten statements are saying that if you find yourself wanting, praying for the death of somebody else. Wanting somebody else to come to harm. Wanting to take away from somebody else something they produce, you want to take it away from them to give you some kind of comfort. You're on the road to psychopathy. You're on the road to singeing your conscience. It probably started way back when you were a child. You can't even remember the incident like the psychopath whose brother drowned in the pool when he was the only one around. Did he push his brother into the pool? Did he keep his brother from getting out of the pool? His brother's only two years old. Did he not call for help when his brother was drowning before his very eyes? Is he refusing to see whatever happened? He's refusing to look at that. So what I call, and I've said this many times in the past, it creates a shadow in your mind. When you refuse to see the truth about something related to what you did or were involved in. If you don't want to see the truth about it, you'll create a shadow in your heart and in your mind. And darkness will rule in you. And you'll become bipolar. You'll become depressed and not know why. You'll become angry and not really have a justified reason. And you will want to make other people around you angry and not have a justified reason. And if you even begin to come near the light 
to show you what it is that is haunting you all these years. Destroying every relationship you have. Undermining every possibility of success. Yourself. You're doing it. Of course, you're blaming it on others. It's because this dark spot in your heart. And in that dark spot, whether Dennis Prager wants to admit it or not, influences from another realm can control you. Now, whether you want to believe in those influences from another realm, those demonic influences are there or not, it doesn't matter whether you believe that or not. You can you you don't have to have that as a part of your theology. But the darkness is real. And from that darkness that it may be all in your own mind. It, it may be like a the schizophrenic who creates multiple identities. In the dark places of your mind that you will not go. It controls the part of your mind that you think you are in control of. But it's coming from that dark place because you haven't seen. What you have to do is love the light. Now, to let that light in is often painful. To see the truth about yourself. And so, that's why we're talking about the God's many. The fact that you're in the bondage of Egypt. I'm not trying to rub it in that you're in the bondage of Egypt. I noticed a, a note came in from one of our YouTube videos. This is one on... Uh, the atheist interview, they asked a question. And they're in the UK. And they're asking a question. I didn't have time to answer because I had to go on the air, but I'll try to get back to it and answer it. Because they're, they're realizing this, that they're, they've been practicing false religion, and now they're back in the bondage of Egypt, and they, they want to get out. Well, what did Jesus say? What was the instructions that Jesus said? He said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He didn't say, that it wasn't until the end, he says, Come out of them, my people, lest ye be partakers of their sins. He says, Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Moses is telling the people how to do that. How to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and take care of one another. And he's making these statements, these judgments, about judgments, so that you will understand how to administer justice amongst you, so that you will do what Jesus says we're supposed to do, which is tend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. You had that right in early America. You had that right in not so well in early England long before William the Conqueror and all that history four or five hundred years of history where everybody in England were becoming subjects again you had the right to decide fact and law in your courts but you can lose that to the other gods you can give power to the other gods of the world of the constitutional order and systems of government. Going back to those people who are new, the five words in the Bible that are translated into world, one of them is the world that Jesus' kingdom is not a part of, and that one is the constitutional order and systems of government. Jesus' kingdom is separate from that. You're not separate from that. Because you're back in the bondage of Egypt. 
but his kingdom is separate. So now you want to get from where you're at in bondage to where you want to be in the kingdom of God. Well, now you have to seek righteousness. You don't know what righteousness is. You can't figure it out from the tree of knowledge, so you need the light. And that's where we're going to try to lead you to when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom after another brief break. So come right back. Okay, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, we need to understand uh, uh, the basic fundamental is that God was setting the captive free. He was returning every man to his family and every man to his possessions. And, of course, almost immediately they created a golden calf where they were going to put all their gold that they had just got when they came out of the bondage of Egypt. Again, remember, when the Pharaoh was going to let them out of the bondage of Egypt, this goes back to what we were just reading, these judgments in Exodus 21 and the previous shows, is that if you brought your wife into this system of bondage, you could take her back out because you had her before you entered into that servitude. But the Israelites were 400 years later and all their wives, they had gotten while they were in bondage. And so the Pharaoh says, you guys can go, but you got to leave your wives and children here. That's the deal. That's the way the law worked. And Moses is explaining these judgments so the people have got this heads up. If I'm going to go into bondage, uh, I need to make sure that I have a right to take my wife out with me when I go in. I don't have a wife yet, but if I get one while I'm in, i got to make that as a provision or not take a wife while I'm in bondage. Of course, all the Israelites took wives while they were in bondage. Many of those wives were probably not even Israelites. They probably were intermarrying with other Egyptians. We know Joseph did. So it's likely that the other Israelites did as well. So he's explaining all this. Everybody has a heads up on how the law works. And he's giving us these judgments. But he's also saying that the people were going to be the fundamental interpreters of the law. With a right of appeal to a network of men who did not go up by steps. We'll explain that more for those of you who are just new to this. Where They were not to go up by steps. They were not to create a hierarchy of authority one over the other. Who exercised authority one over the other. I use that particular phrase because Jesus says we are not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who go up by steps. Who exercise authority one over the other. So who is our appeals courts? It's not those that were appointed by uh, Bill Clinton on the day he fired them all and reappointed them. It would be done by men who are part of the cities of refuge, which we will come to eventually. But there's, there's a reference in Exodus 21 about these making a place where you can appeal to. But these men that we appeal to not to try people, but to acquit them, 
to have set them free. That's why you need the right to decide fact and law. If you had the right to decide fact and law, which is guaranteed by most constitutions of the states and also guaranteed by the principles of the Supreme Court from the very beginning of the in foundation of the United States, but nobody has any more because something took place. But they had the right to decide fact and law so that even if there was a statute that said that you had to wear a mask or you had to do this, you could overrule that statute as a jury who decide fact and law. They don't want you to know that as one of the big secrets. I don't care if you do know that. If you don't let the light into your heart, whatever judgment you come up with will still be a psychopathic judgment. Because you're not in control of your mind. You're not in control of your mind because you've got all these dark spots in your mind because you don't want to see the truth. Now, I mention that here so that I can explain something farther down. <laughs> it, you know, at, at the, the, if you already see the whole puzzle, you, you know, like, you're going to need that piece over here. <laughs> don't, don't put it there. You're going to need that piece over here. So the piece of the puzzle is that the men that you go to, your appeals courts, have to be men of love. What's another word for love in the New Testament? Two words that are translated love. Or actually, excuse me. There's one word translated as two words. Love and charity. So you need a group of men who will be your appeals courts, that their whole life revolves around charity. And not going up by steps, but a hierarchy of service. A charitable life. We see the description of these men in Timothy and Titus. They have to be these men full of forgiveness, full of charity, full of love for one another. That's what Christ was appointing to be your cities of refuge. We still have that, you know, that city of refuge idea. It's it's come all the way down to us, you know, where you you can you supposedly you can go into a church and they can't arrest you. That <laughs> actually has still taken precedence. But they, even if they're going into a not real church, you know, one of the fake churches of the false religion that has become so predominant and created such darkness in the world today. Because they are the blind leading the blind. We're going to try to get you back to the truth. So, but that's what Moses is going to set up. Appeals Court of Men of Charity. I'm sure that whoever Bill Clinton appointed. (laughs) I'm picking on Bill Clinton because he's not really around. And I'm not supposed to say bad things about the existing president, whoever he is. But, um, you know. Uh, I mean, there's an executive order, and I'll, I'll mention that here because I'm going to try to get to a point where we can talk about executive orders. That he, in one of his executive orders, which we we talk about at preparing you in one of our early, early, early articles that were originally went out when we were uh, publishing a, a weekly newspaper, but now the internet makes us save a lot. We save lots of trees now because we publish it on the internet. If you p- become a part of the the network, you'll get access to all that. Uh, it, it, the access is there, but y- there's so much you can get lost. So I would encourage everybody to go to preparing you and join the network. At least that. 
and then eventually join the Living Network and then you'll find out more of the pieces of the puzzle. But the uh, Bill Clinton in his executive order said that he was the federal government and him, therefore, is the supreme moral authority of Americans. He, Bill Clinton is the supreme moral authority. That's the word he uses, supreme moral authority. <laughs> so lots of luck with that. But anyway, uh, if, if you do set that up, and you can start setting that up now to the people in the UK asking the question, if you're seeking the kingdom of God, that you will start setting up this alternative system now. It, it, that's what they were doing during the plagues in Egypt. They were setting up that system where they could communicate with all the Israelites all over the place overnight to know what's coming to be prepared and then eventually get kicked out and, and you'll be told, you'll literally be told they're not going to help you anymore. They're going to stop helping. They're going to stop giving you benefits because their banks are collapsing. Their economy is collapsing. Their, their resources are, are, are becoming narrow and they will, they will only feed those that are extremely loyal to them and will bow down and serve them. If you stick your heads up, they'll cut your heads off. Well, you're not supposed to stick your heads up and, and revolt against them, which Moses will tell you. You're supposed to, and Jesus will tell you. You're supposed to turn around, think differently, and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's what Moses was explaining and we're explaining. One of the arguments that they had in episode 10 was they mentioned Hammurabi's codes. Moses is not writing another version of Hammurabi codes. Hammurabi codes came from the king. What Moses is telling you is what already existed. He's just putting it down and explaining it. If Hammurabi codes come from the king and not from God, not from a pre-existing creator, then when the new Hammurabi comes, Hammurabi will die. Somebody else will take the office of Hammurabi, the king. He will. He can change the codes. Unless you're priest and king, like Jesus was, you can't change the codes. And Jesus didn't change the codes. He reaffirmed them. They're not done away with. But your understanding of the codes, according to the Pharisees, was done away with. That's what actually was done away with. The codes that Moses was explaining still exist today. Precept upon precept. Generation upon generation. They're not changing. Our understanding of them might change. But he's not writing codes. And that's going to be very important as we get farther down and find out how the interpretation of what Moses was writing is turning the whole world into psychopaths. And and we're going to show you that so that even Jordan Peterson can catch it. I shouldn't say even. Maybe some of the other members of his deal should be able to catch it. But whether they catch it or not depends upon how much of the light they're willing to let in. Because when you let in the light, you see the garbage that's already in your heart and your mind. And that can be painful. So, he's, uh, one of the things, oh, I'll, I'll save this that for later. Uh, it's, actually, I just discovered it during the break. All of a sudden, it occurred to me. <laughs> I realized that, that, 
There's a particular word where they're going to be talking about, give you a heads up, putting people to death. Supposedly in the codes, and, and some of the people that are on his uh, his symposium, they think that that's actually what it says, is that if somebody does this and somebody does that, you're supposed to put them to death. And uh, no, you're not. That's not what it says. And can I prove it? Well, I'm going to show you a lot of things that I can prove. And you're just going to have to decide for yourself in your heart and your mind. This is the part of that thinking differently. If I convince you with my logic, you've made no progress whatsoever. But if you let the Holy Spirit in enough so that you see, you don't have the right to put people to death. You just don't have that right. And that's not the right that Moses was giving them. Uh, Hammurabi put people to death. I can tell you, you know, one of the first places you'll see uh, this idea of putting somebody to death is uh, in Genesis eleven twenty eight. That's not the first place, but we see the word pop up there. I think it's uh, my yeah, right. Haran died, and I've talked about this years ago. That when I first read that back in Genesis, Haran died. That isn't the word for died. It's often translated died or die or death. But that isn't really what the word... And of course, again, there's lots of letters that they add to these these words. But the fundamental word there that he he was... He caused to die. Now, in the Hammurabi Codes, you could be put to death using that word to die, to death, put to death by the codes for almost anything if you helped a slave escape if somebody was beating a slave and you protected the slave you interfered with that master's right to beat his slave to discipline his slave that was obstruction of justice <laughs> Amurabi codes that's a common uh, claim you're obstructing this officer that's that's the word that they use there. And we'll be looking at that word quite a bit in order to understand what I'm, I'm bringing up here. But if, if you have law by executive order or even by the legislature, the legislature can change the law. If you have law by executive order, the executive order can change the law. And I've seen this and I've talked about it on many radio programs where, you know, somebody signs an executive order that's supposed to be a good thing, and then somebody else reverses it when they come into the office. We saw that with uh, jo- Joseph Biden, that he undid a great many of the things that the previous president, Donald Trump, had done. Some of those things that Donald signed executive orders for were positive things. They were going in the right direction. Not that he was, I don't know what he was doing, but some of the things that he said was giving freedom and choice back to the people. That's a good thing. Biden reversed that. And he's also signed other executive orders that the next president, I guess, could reverse. The executive orders like we can now work on genome projects that will reprogram human genes or even animal genes so that we can make our own minotaurs or change people into something other than what they were originally. We can genetically manipulate cells. 
and changed them. That's a recipe for one of the worst plagues you could imagine because now you can have diseases crossing genetics because you, you're going you're going to be doing that enhancing function thing <laughs> in a big way. And there's nothing you can do probably to stop that. I'm, those people who want to, are politically active and want to try to stop that, that's more power to you. Go ahead and, and pursue that. But uh, ultimately, it's going to take divine intervention. And this is one of the things that Dennis Prager is starting to see, that there is seems to be some sort of malevolent force behind all this because they're uniformly working in a particular direction. And I'm pretty sur- sure that Joseph Biden is not the mastermind of this plot. <laughs> I'm just... I'm just guessing, but I'm pretty sure that that's the case. But if we go look at where they talk about, you know, this particular word that they they have that they're they're saying means die, and as part of the the phrase "surely put to death," which we'll see over and over again, that uh, the that particular word is. Uh, uh, Muth. It's uh, Mem. Yeah, Mem Vav Tav. Uh, that's, that's the root word. It shows up in a lot of other different ways. But it's not the only word for kill. Uh, Ratak is another word for kill, which actually means more to murder. But it's translated kill in many places, like Exodus 20, uh, verse 3. Exodus 22, 24, verse 24. We see the word kill, but it's the different word. It's harag, which is a very different word than ratzak. There's also neka, which is also translated kill, but actually more often it's, 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 uh, translated smite. When Moses killed the Egyptian, he smote the Egyptian, and the Egyptian evidently died from that smoting, but he wasn't intending to murder him, but he was intending to smite him. Maybe he was intending to murder him, I don't know. But uh, maybe he had the right to murder him because he was the highest son of the daughter of Pharaoh. <laughs> so he had rights to do it. But like I said, he, and this is why it was so important back then when we were going through some of these verses, that we were pointing out that Moses was actually horrified at the idea that he was becoming a murderer. Yet, if we are to believe the interpretation of these judgments that they call statutes, Moses is telling us that we can all become murderers. We can put this guy to death, and this gal to death, and this person to death, and that person to death. And he's doing it with a word that doesn't mean murder. It means to let die. And I, we gave the example that in the course of this, he's saying that remove him from my altars so that he may die. And that's really what he's talking about all the time you see him saying, put to death. Because the first time we hear these words, this particular word, mut, mem vav tuf, is God's command to us concerning the tree of life and the tree of 
knowledge of good and evil. That if you decide to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. You will be put to death. Next time we hear it, it's the serpent saying, you will not die. (laughs) You will not surely die. But when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't actually die. They didn't actually physically get put to death. They still lived. But they were physically or spiritually removed from the tree of life. They couldn't go to the tree of life. They were afraid of the tree of life. They were afraid of the light of the tree of life. And they hid from it. When that boy's two-year-old brother drowned in the pool, he could not remember exactly what happened. He was afraid. His mind would not go there. And because of that, he became a psychopath. Again, going back to Jordan Peterson, he's talking about going back and not being a prisoner of your youth and the mistakes of your youth and the traumas of your youth. See, that was a trauma. I don't know if he pushed his brother in. I don't know if he kept his brother from trying to get out. I don't know if he didn't just stand there, watched his brother drown. I mean, I don't know that he was old enough to jump in and save him. There was no other parent around. But he was, it was definitely, I can tell you this, it was a traumatic event that he cannot think about. Still, to the, you know, he's probably passed away now. This story is, back in my 30s and 40s. But uh, but I see the same trauma in people over and over again. And it's actually recognizable. People I've known, well, they, you can see they definitely have problems. And they, there's certain things they can't see. And they, they actually do things they don't want to do, but they do them anyway, and they can't help themselves. And I say, that problem... That person has never progressed beyond the age of eight years old or never progressed beyond the age of five years old. Or, you know, we even say it ourselves. We say, that guy acts like a two-year-old. It's because he had a trauma when he was two years old and he has never grown complete. He's still dragging that two-year-old trauma experience into his adulthood life. And now he's wreaking havoc as an adult. Destroying his own children. Destroying his own sons and daughters. I see women do it. Destroy their own daughters. Because of some trauma they have. That they're still carrying with them. How do you get rid of that trauma? How do you get rid of the effects of that trauma? You have. You can only do it with light. You have to bring the antiseptic power of light into your heart and into your mind. And that's what Moses is setting up, a system whereby you might be able to do that. You might be able to do that. You might be saved if you do that and tend to the weightier matters. He's put the weightier matters into the hands of the people. He is not telling you, oh yeah, kill that guy. Oh yeah, he cut wood, kill him. He cut wood on the Sabbath. Let's kill him. Put him to death. No. He's not saying that. I got all kinds of notes now back on that page and preparing you at Exodus 21. And I could try to go through it all. 
but we would be here till the afternoon show. <laughs> and but I want I, I put in in the notes that you can see that there's other words to box uh, shashat uh, don't really mean kill, but uh, in the sense of of killing a person or putting a person to death, tabak has more to do with animals. It's actually like butchering the animal, cutting it up, and preparing it to redistribute. Um, but there is the ratzak and the harag, and that's not the words we see there. We see this other mut or yadmut, and the, there's a reason why that word is there, and it doesn't mean put to death. And the word is most often in the writing of Moses, but we do find it in Ezekiel and even as far away as Jeremiah. But he's saying, let somebody die. Well, that's what Moses is saying back there with the altar. Take him, remove him from the altar and let him die. That's basically what he's saying. You're not going to give him any more social welfare. Which takes us back to the people in England who are asking the question, what do they do? They, they need that welfare now in order to get by. Well, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Get together in tens, hundreds, and thousands. Create your own network. Become the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Do it steadily, religiously, now, before the system entirely collapses. You, you won't be able to create the system that will take its place. Only God will be able to create that system. But all the people that are seeking to think differently, repent and think differently, not look to those systems of the world. It, it's not yet time probably for you to come out of Babylon. But when Babylon starts to fall, everybody better be ready to go somewhere. <laughs> So seek the kingdom of God in the meantime and then you will have a place to go. Moses talks about a place to go. And I'm of course saying it's the cities of refuge but it's more than that. That that cities of refuge that he created with the, the Levites, these men of charity is symbolic of the cities of refuge. We're all going to need a Basra. We're all going to need somebody to intervene, divinely intervene. Because like I said, we'll all be free, but we won't all survive freedom. If you want to survive freedom, you have to think differently. And what what way are you supposed to think? You're supposed to think, which, you know, maybe I'll get to in the afternoon show. You're supposed to think like Christ thought. Christ sacrificed himself so that others may be saved. That has to be your attitude. You have to have the mind of Christ. You know, if you just I just to give you a little heads up on it. You know, if this word mut mem vav tav, the word uh, vav tav can can actually mean death. Uh, but if you put a mem on it, which usually has to do with flow. It still can mean death. But why, death doesn't flow. Death is the stopping of flowing. But yet we see a mem on the beginning of this word that means death. Bob Tov. What is Bob Tov? Well, we'll be right back and tell you.
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we're in looking at this uh, 21 uh, of Exodus, this chapter 21. There's so much in this and so many things that are misconceived. And a lot of those misconceptions we've addressed in many of the previous uh, shows, you know, like the word God and Elohim and the fact that we... Who is your God? Who has the right to decide what is good and evil for you? Who has the right to decide what is right and wrong for you? And are they deciding it according to the will of God? And, of course, the idea of the ten statements are showing you that if if you're doing this, if you're coveting your neighbor's goods, you're not going by the rules. You're You're outside the boundaries. If you're... Causing the death of people, you're outside the boundaries. If you're causing uh, people to be robbed, forced to give up funds, uh, then you're outside the boundaries. If you're not taking care of your mother and your father, honoring your father and your mother, uh, the fattening, which means to be increasing your father and your mother, taking care of them, providing for them, it's not loving, it's not obeying, it's honoring, uh, kabed, fattening, taking care of. If you're not doing that, and as a matter of fact, you're doing no more odd for them because you got this agreement with some government temple to take care of your parents for you so that you don't have to do it, you're not keeping the statements, you're not following the path, you're not going in the way doing contrary to the way. If you invented a God, a religion, a doctrine that is not telling you that you're in the bondage of Egypt, then you're worshiping and serving false gods. If you've gone into the bondage of Egypt and your labor now belongs to somebody else, it's because you've strayed from what the Ten Statements state which they expound on it later on in Deuteronomy and everything, you're never to return to the bondage of Egypt. That's for all those Jews out there. You're never to return to the bondage of Egypt. Deuteronomy 17. But if you go to the nation of Israel, they're all in the bondage of Egypt. A portion of their labor, heavy progressive income tax. That's the bondage of Egypt. Uh, their labor isn't there. The, the, their leaders can draft not only the men. They not only make the men run before their chariots. They make the women run before their chariots. And, you know, I, I in a recent show, I talked about a previous prime minister. I guess he's prime minister again in in Israel. Rolled back the social welfare system from what it was. And they experienced huge prosperity. But he only rolled it back a little ways. And it was a huge benefit. It saved them from a collapsing economy. I don't think you have the will to do that in America. I don't think you'll be able to have a vote and some somebody will vote that in. But then again, you're not supposed to be in one purse. That runs towards death according to Proverbs. Same as the dainties, eating the dainties of rulers, men who go up by steps. That that leads to disaster as well. Well, you've been doing all that, but you individually can now repent 
and seek the kingdom of God that doesn't operate that way, operates on faith, hope, and charity, not force, fear, and fealty. And you can help us find all the other people who want to try to live that way, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and form a network of people. And through that network, there will be a mem, a flowing of energy and power that doesn't flow towards death, but flows towards life. We'll take you back to the tree of life. Of course, in order to get there, you're going to have to look at all those problems that may have been making you, you know, a schizophrenic or a uh, uh, bipolar or depressed. There's no depression in the kingdom of God. If there's depression, you've been going, you're on the wrong side of things. He's, oh, well, it's a chemical thing. Well, it's all chemical. But God can change the chemistry of your body and of your mind and can set the captive free from that, what seems to be binding you in in this sociopathic lifestyle where you destroy your children. Your children, you raise up your children and they're a mess. What happened to them? Why are they a mess? Do you think you had anything to do with it? Oh, no, it wasn't me. Oh, yeah, it was. You're in there somewhere. It's not entirely your fault. Your children have to take some of the responsibility. Your spouse has to take some of the responsibility. The other people around them traumatizing your children so that they become dysfunctional, they have to take some of the responsibility. But responsibility isn't like pie. You don't get 25% and somebody else gets 30%. Responsibility is you're 100% responsible for you and what you did. And you have to be willing to see that in order to remove the trauma. You have to love the light to be born again. You can't be denying this and then tell me you're born again. Because this is, this is what's happening. We have turned a system that should make you immune to this psychopathy, this narcissistic psychopathy, because it operates entirely upon sacrifice, daily ministration of personal sacrifice. You have to choose to give, and you have to choose to give wisely. And that will take you... That will flow you in one direction. If you don't, it will flow you in the other direction. One direction is life and the other one is death. The tree of knowledge flows you to death if that is where you're eating. If you eat of the tree of life, you can have some knowledge too. But that's not the source of your actions. So anyway, like I said, if you add this mem to the letters Vav Tav, which already means death, you get Mavet, Memvav Tav. That particular combination of letters, Mem and, and a Tav, will spell this word that we also say is death. But it actually means flow towards death. So when they're saying put to death, they're not actually saying put to death, they're saying let them flow towards death if they choose to. It's it's allowing them to make the wrong choices that will take them to death. 
Because without choice, you can't choose life. You can't choose to go to life. And that's why, that's why they have a whole movement called right to choose. You know, they, they want the right to choose. They want to choose death. I always say, I'm, I'm for right to, freedom of choice, right to choose, but I want you to choose life. <laughs> I don't want you to abort your child. If you're aborting your child, you can count on what, as you judge, so shall you be judged. You will be aborted from life. You will be cast out from life. And they celebrate that because they're the religion of death. So all these things, you know, like I said, the abortion rate in the world today is a symptom of these other choices. Now, if you add the, if you have the Memtab, but you add the letter Elif to it, you know what you get? Elif, Elif is the letter that is two yods and a vav, which is representing the relationship of God and man. If you connect with God, this giver of life, this creator of life, if you, and that's the elif, that's what it represents, that relationship. If you put that at the beginning of mem tov, which is death, it becomes emet, which is truth. And now you don't flow to death, you flow to truth. And that truth usually begins with the truth about yourself. If somebody's pointing out all the problems with government all the time and not pointing out your problems, your personal problems, they're not going to help you. They're distracting you from the real problem. And the real problem begins in you. And that's good news. Because you can do something about you. You can't do much about the government of the world. I mean, you know, the New World Order and the Great Reset and all those guys. Those are so far removed, you can't do much about them. Much less Bill Clinton or any of the other guys who run for president. You can't, but you can do a lot about you. And But mostly what you need to do is allow something to be done in you. And that's why Moses is giving them these guidelines. And if they forget this, then they they will end up following the blind. You know, even the name Adam, Elif, Delet, Mem. So you got this flow. Delet is the delta, the the mouth of the river. Elif is this relationship with God. The beginning, uh, the relationship of God begins at the delta of the river and flows. Okay, if you remove the Elif, the relationship of God and man. All you have left is blood, void of spirit, which is an animal, an animal nature that has no, it's just blood. It's just, it's, it's life, but it's not the life that flows from God. It's the dog-eat-dog world. It's the perfect savage world that we're creating because we're removing the relationship with, and, and again, here I'm saying the relationship of man and God. When I say God, of course, the capital G, God, the Elohim, the ruling judge, the one who created the universe, created the patterns of the law that we see explained 
in the Ten Statements, explained in the judgments listed off by Moses, which are not laws, but are referring to ways in which, okay, we had this situation, we had this situation, we had a pit, we had, and you dug the pit, and you didn't put up barricades around it, and somebody fell in, and you're responsible, and he's giving you precedent, showing you how those ten statements would apply in the real world. If you turn those into statutes, before you know it, you'll be putting people to death because they cut wood on Sabbath. While you yourself are in debt to trillions and trillions of dollars. <laughs> because you're not keeping the Sabbath. It's the major part of keeping the Sabbath is working first. And if you're in debt, you didn't work first. You borrowed. You borrowed against the future of your life, the future of your children's life, and you cursed your children. You become indentured servants. You're indentured servants. See, you know, Jacob needed to understand who he was dealing with when he first ran into Laban. But he was deceivable because there was deceit in him. He deceived his father and he, in turn, was deceived by Laban, who sent in Leah instead of Rachel. You see, as you judge, so shall you be judged. So all the problems that you see developing around you, collapsing banks and all these kinds of things that are going on in the news today. I mean, they'll, you know, pandemics, real or fake, whatever. It doesn't really matter. It's all about judgment. What you judged yesterday is going to come on you tomorrow. So now, if you turn around your thinking and start judging that I have to learn to live by faith, hope, and charity... Well, who do I want to learn to live by faith, hope, and charity with? Other people who want to live by faith, hope, and charity. Who want to do what Moses actually said, which is to sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands and start settling disputes amongst yourselves. Start creating an economy amongst yourself that is just right and fair. You can start to do that. Now, admittedly, you've got to start small because there's not very many people out there. <laughs> who who even want to see that they're in the bondage of Egypt? That's a I, I'm I'm waiting for the opportunity where somebody actually says, you know, well we're in the bondage of Egypt, <laughs> but they still have people on their panel that are going to probably be arguing that yeah, we're supposed to be putting people to death that do these things. Uh, you know, I'm not for the death penalty. Now, the the death penalty is a part of. The law of God. And, and Moses even gives us a judgment precedent showing us that if somebody is breaking into your house, tend on robbing you, taking your food uh, so that your children might die, taking you, your funds so that you, you might perish because there, there was no social security back then. You, know, you can't go to the government. You could go to your neighbor. But he's coming in to steal some of your life, this idea of property. That the 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 grain that you have in your grain bin in your house, you you planted it, you grew it, you harvested it, you winnowed it, you put it in there, you made the storage, and somebody's breaking in to take it out. He's taking out all that time. He's robbing you of all that time. No, you don't have to let him rob you of all that time. 
you could try to stop him because he's trying to steal a portion of your life. I mean, is he going to cut off your left hand? Is he going to cut off your left arm? Can he do that? Because that's stealing part of your life too. I mean, you might not die from that, but it's part of your life. No, you can, you can defend yourself and even kill him. Which is why, uh, if that's necessary, you know, equal force, etc., etc., which Moses is going to give us lots of judgments explaining, you know, you can't take, you can only take an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but you don't know what this guy is doing. If he's breaking in and he's coming at you trying to swing a crowbar at him, at you, yeah, you can, you can stop him, because that could kill you. He's, he's waived his right to life. You don't have to kill him, but if he ends up dying in your defense, that's okay. Did you murder him? No, you actually saved him from becoming a murderer. <laughs> so, anyway. So, we've kind of looked at a, a lot of this, but it's about accountability. He's putting the responsibility of being the government of the people, for the people, and by the people, back in the hands of the people. He is not turning all the people of Israel into micro Hammurabis that are going to put every neighbor to death, like Haran was put to death. He was caused to die, because he was actually dead. And that's the way Hammurabi, when they said put to death, they didn't mean let die. They didn't say, we're, we're going to take him from the our altar so that he might die. They actually put him to death. They were a tyranny. And if if these lines in here actually mean put to death, he's making all the Israelites little tyrants. He's, he's giving them the power of life and death over other people. No, what he was doing was simply cutting them off. Okay, you've done this. We're not, you're not going to be welcome at the altar anymore. And this is important to understand. You're not, you're not going to get any more social welfare. You, you don't have to pay into it. You didn't have to pay into it before. You should pay into it, but it's your choice because you're the government and I'm not. He wasn't making the people little governments, little tyrants who says, oh, I saw him cutting wood on the Sabbath, so we're going to put him to death. I saw him, you know, do this. You know, he dug that pit. We're going to put him to death. And this, this is going to come into real important when we look at stoning. Because stone, the altars are stone. Does stoning have to do with notifying the altars that this guy is out? Separate? Don't give to him anymore? Is that what stoning means? Or does it mean that everybody in the village has to go get a big rock and throw it at this person's head until he dies? That's an absolute bloody, brutal way to kill somebody. I don't believe that Moses was telling people that. Now, you can believe it. You can stick to it. I'm sure a lot of Orthodox people who already got their doctrines. But you have to remember those doctrines is why you're back in the bondage of Egypt. Which is why it's so important that everybody start to realize that your systems have brought you back 
into the bondage of Egypt. A place that God said you were never to go back to. And if you're back there, then you're probably not doing what the God who delivered you out of there was saying for you to do. And you're probably not doing what he said for you to do because you've misinterpreted Yad Vav Mim Tav. <laughs> Yamat. It doesn't mean you shall put him to death. It means you will let him die. And of course that fits right into what Jesus said to the foolish virgins who were burning up their oil. They weren't taking care of the needy. They, they were just using the oil for themselves. They weren't sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands sacrificing for one another. They were just burning their own oil. And then they come knocking at the door. And Jesus says, I'm not letting you in. Uh, you're out. I'm not, not letting you in. Whoa. That Jesus, he's so merciless. Well, no, didn't let you in. Jesus isn't going to let you in. And whoever is running things when it comes times that everybody does need a Basra, a place to refuge to, they're not going to let you in either. And even if you do get in, <laughs> you better make sure you have wedding garments. And those of you who have read the text, no. Now, these are symbolic. And I'm I'm throwing out these symbols. I'll refer to them in later shows. But, you know, all our shows are available on podcasts all over the Internet. I really recommend you start listening to them because we're we're giving you, I can't give you the whole puzzle at once. And everybody's got a piece of the puzzle that's missing in their own hearts and their own minds. Everybody has dark spots in their own history, their own traumas. And in order to, and you can't see your dark spots. You can't see those hidden in you. They can control you. They can control your mind. They can lead you into disastrous choices and decisions. But God can lead you out of wherever you're at. But he's only going to lead you out in a righteous way. So you have to seek how that righteous way actually works. You have to be willing to see those dark spots in your own heart. And nothing like gathering with other people that are starting to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his light. Will they be able to help you see those dark spots in your own heart? And then you can do the same favor for them. (laughs) And you can have the conversation that Paul spoke of. Where you began to learn the process of dealing with the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. So, what did we learn today? God is an office. Somebody has the right to decide good and evil. You can do it for yourself and then you're your own God. (laughs) Deciding good and evil for yourself. You can appoint other men. You can elect other men to decide what is good and evil for you. Uh, You can eat at their tables, even though their tables are a snare, according to Paul and David. You can eat their dainties. You can all have one purse in a social estate, but you run towards death. And you sever the Elif 
from the Mimtav so that all you have left is death. Or you can do the other. You can start thinking differently. Realizing to save my life, I have to try to save other people's lives. That's why you want to join in congregations of tens, hundreds, and thousands. Not to save yourself. If that's your goal, you better look at that. (laughs) Your goal has to be to save others. And be willing to lay down your life. And that shouldn't be a problem if Christ is really in you. If you're really born again of Christ, laying down your life is not a problem. But you have to actually be doing that. And so maybe now that we've gotten to all those basic things and those basic understandings, stop coveting your neighbor's goods, stop putting your neighbor to death, stop doing it to the men who exercise authority and start becoming the kingdom of God. Till then... Peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.